every place you come across has a different way of doing it. And it is definitely that if you have specific rules or principles and you try to apply them, they probably work the first time you build the software because it's nice and clean. But then as soon as you then try and expand the software, maintain the software, add new features into the software, you get into this horrible world of, well, do I, do I break the principles to achieve what I want to do? Or do I spend much longer ripping everything apart to insert all the new stuff and maintain the principles again. I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. So uh, I'm not going to say the thing I always say, that we're going to do something different, because it's always different, right? Uh, it's, I'm reminded every day lately that APIs are everywhere now. I mean, if you can touch something, there's probably an API for it. Uh, you just haven't turned it on yet. Uh, so from the UK, uh, joining me today is Chris Turner, uh, who's actually writes code for a living, uh, which I have to point out is somewhat unusual for our guests. So Chris, thanks for joining. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. So yeah, um, I'm a, a software engineer in the UK. Um, I'm still 25 years into my career. I still, my main goal is writing code. I love writing code and designing systems. Um, worked across a range of domains from everything from sort of uh, travel reservation, uh, telecoms, media, uh, e-commerce, uh, green tech. But currently I'm working for a, a really niche UK bank called Crown Agents Bank. And we're, we're sort of a, a specialist bank that speci specialise in moving money in between countries, particularly moving money from the developed world into developing countries, particularly in Africa, and using sort of computer systems and joining up all the APIs and all the various systems to actually make those those payments into countries where that money really makes a difference. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and, you know, I couldn't help but notice on your profile, you've been working on this API stuff for quite some time. Um, and, you know, it's like I was saying, they're, they're everywhere now. Uh, so, yeah, you end up learning a lot of different things. I guess when you look back at all these different domains, all these different kind of industries, where does that kind of take in your thinking when now you're in, in fintech and banking, which I have some experience with? And it's pretty different. But uh, do you feel like there are sort of portable things from that that you're now more focused on and implementing this? Yeah, definitely. I think over the years, I've been through, again, all the all the standard things like the, the journey through SOAP and all of those things and still see this thing that everyone sort of kind of like creates their own API and each API is subtly different to every other API, which is always makes a, a, a fun integration challenge. And particularly sort of what we're doing at Crown Agents Banks, we've got lots of legacy banking systems, modern banking systems. And we're also often integrating into banks and mobile network providers in Africa, which have, again, a variety of different levels of sophistication on their APIs. And just looking at that got me thinking, started to get us thinking around, well, how can we, how can we try and create a common view of all those APIs without sort of trying to aggregate them all together? Because that's never going to happen. We've just got such a diversity. And my experience over the years has always shown that it's sort of, Try to create generic APIs has never really worked. I've always found that what you end up with is either 
a horrible giant mess which is really difficult to deal with or something which is like the worst of all the worlds so what we started to look at is let's let's try and focus these apis around particular domains and then use some sort of uh, the, the software engineering techniques that we use to build good software and see how we can apply them into sort of like the world of apis that we're building yeah it's it's interesting because i uh i feel like when I look at, um, you mentioned like aggregation and the idea that you can come up with like the perfect API for a given vertical. Um, you know, I, I'm old enough and I guess you probably are too to remember like the days of Oasis and SOAP, right? And we yeah. saw these industry groups get together and say, well, let's all agree uh, between all these different huge companies as to what the spec should be. And by the time they're done, no one wants to use it because it's like, you know, 50,000 fields to do anything. Um, but it's interesting to see these days, there's more and more of these kind of aggregation platforms that are trying to make it easier and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm kind of with you. Um, it seems like a, a fleeting goal that is uh, diminishing returns over time. Yeah, I've definitely found in the, particularly my previous role, I worked in sort of green tech energy and we were integrated with a lot of energy APIs and there were lots of developments of standards for sort of grid management and things like that. But every new provider that came in with something different, add a bit to it, add a bit to it. And they, you sort of end up with a core and all these little extensions that go off of it and various profiles. And it actually becomes such a big blob of stuff to try and get your head around and implement it would have it would have been so much easier just to have half a dozen very simple apis that the understandability of that i, f I find would be a much greater so it's easier to understand easier to build than trying to sort of create something that requires a massive amount of code with lots of additional statements which is hard to test and likely to have a lot more bugs in it yeah, it's an interesting facet of what you're doing here. And having some prior experience in fintech in my time at PayPal, um, you know, one of the like American perspective things that I learned was uh, the whole world doesn't use credit cards to pay for stuff. Uh, and certainly like I was more involved with Japan, but was aware of, of Africa that like mobile phone based payment is the way. And so, uh, you know, it, I would imagine connecting with all of the different sort of telecom providers and all that sort sort of stuff, which in that market, it's text-based payment, right? Uh, so super foreign and seems like impossible to secure. But uh, so I'd imagine your your perspective on consumption here is uh, is somewhat different too, which is partially the the way you're describing this problem. Yeah, yeah, it's effectively yeah every every single provider that we potentially connect to has got a. They're, they're very similar because they're all trying to do mobile payments of money when we're moving sort of small amounts into people's mobile accounts, but they all do it in a subtly different way. And we 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 still got some customers, some providers that we integrate to where are still using portals and we actually have to web scrape them. So they're not even on the API journey there yet. But but a lot of them are APIs, but there are lots of sort of um, XML based APIs. And things like that and they're they're all very subtly different in terms of exact ids and how they represent sort of particular data so it's it's kind of quite hard to aggregate all of those into a common approach so we do tend to end up with a core but sort of specific implementations for each sort of each provider that we're actually connecting to for that yeah and, and connecting with that many providers i mean beyond i guess you know you're I would venture to guess you've got sort of an internal representation of how to aggregate those things that, you know, you only use for your own implementation. But how do you look at, at sort of the resilience of 
having to connect to all those different things, which I could imagine in a developing market like Africa, you might have things that go up and down and uh, they might be a little shakier than in some other parts of the world. Yeah, that's a, absolutely. We have a, a a lot of the core implementation of us of our code is around sort of strategies for dealing with sort of retry mechanisms, back off mechanisms, and we, we even have some providers who, for example, we might have a a single account that we have to log into, so we can only make payments sequentially. So therefore, we've then got sort of back off queuing mechanisms and sort of a semaphores in that that we have to kind of create that actually prevent access so multiple payments don't try and process that putting everything in queues so it's, it's a whole sort of gambit of different things that we have to sort of think on top of rather than just the protocol that we send as well, well it makes it fun yeah for sure uh i think you just won for new term on api intersection uh semaphore uh so congrats i don't think i've ever heard Excellent. anyone mention it before <laughs> <laughs> uh, CS people, uh, CS stuff. Most people forget about. Um, yeah, those, those core, those core techniques are still. Oh, they're still yeah. there. They're still there under the covers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on, on all this kind of resiliency stuff, um, are, are there specific sort of tools that you know you've used that have made this easier to deal with um, in terms of you know all the back off and all these things you're talking about, or is this all bespoke? There's a lot of bespoke stuff, but uh, quite a lot we use um, um, a framework. So taking from sort of like the world of domain-driven design, one of the sort of concepts in there that you may have sort of come across is called um, CQRS, Command Query Responsibility Segregation. So in the theory, you're having a, a effectively a stream of events, which is your event, event source, which is your source of truth and your timeline. And then you, from that, you process the events and create various views and things. So we kind of tend to make use of that. So there's a particular framework, Axon framework, which is an implementation of that, which is very good. And it contains lots of useful technology for like timing events, setting retry events to trigger at some point in the future. So we can sort of send off a message asynchronously, wait, and if it times out, we can then schedule a retry event to occur at some point in the future to try again. And we use that to also schedule events around managing resources and the, the back off of there. So kind of using that sort of that that audit trail of all the transaction history through that we can actually use that. And then everything is then an event coming back in to trigger sort of the, the next stage or the retry or, or some kind of building queuing mechanism to stack that up. So it's, a, it's sort of a lot of bespoke, but building on sort of some standard core sort of modeling practices that have been proven over uh, a number of years. Yeah, I've, I feel like that it's a, a thing that always comes up. Um, I'll say, though, I feel like um, a lot of shops I've been in, I see folks fail at trying it. You know, like They get halfway and it's sort of like CRS or QRS or something like it's you know kind of halfway done. But the dream is always that, well, we can replay this stuff in, uh, in test, right? Uh, so have you realized the dream and can you actually do these, uh, replay of log kind of stuff and tests? We, we're getting, we're getting closer. We're not, we're definitely not there yet, but we are, we, we're definitely at the point where we can collect the event source and we can replay the stream through, but we've probably still got a little bit of work to actually do that. And the, the real challenge is, is when we're most of the systems we're integrating to, a lot of them are very unreliable and, un, and unstable. So they actually, and a lot of them don't even have like test instances that we can use. So we can't replay those events against live services. So a lot of the work we're working on towards now is how can we actually 
create a simulation of those services that actually honors the same API contract and then be able to replay the sequence of events against the simulation to test our software. But then can we use the stream of events then against the actual API to test that their system is still behaving in the way we expect it to? So we, we, we've definitely got a long way to go on there, but it's, a, it's going to be a, a very good journey when we get there, I think. Well, I'll say in, in our experience at Stoplight, when we see folks using mocking like you're describing, um, it's usually a, a good sign of a level of maturity and approach. Um, it's not usually a thing people start with to kind of you know learn about it over time. So that's, that's a good sign. Um, on events, I'm curious, um, and, and I suppose this is valid for the API side too, um, are you using sort of spec formats to describe these things? Yeah, we, we again, we're just really starting to get into proper sort of API contracts and things and enforcing those. So for particularly for our sort of um, a, our synchronous HTTP stuff, we're starting to get sort of open API contracts properly drafted for all those so that we've got sort of something to validate and, and creating them as well for the third parties that we're integrating because most of them don't have that. They have some, some very flaky documentation quite often. So actually trying to sort of build some contracts for those as well. You're getting those PDFs in your email? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to love that it's, way of working. It'll never not exist. It's always going to be a thing somewhere. Um, yeah. So um, open API for the, the synchronous stuff on the event side, are you using anything? Uh, in similar fashion for contract? Not really at the moment. So that's definitely a, an, an interesting area to look at. But most, fortunately, we're at the point where most of the systems that we are integrating with tend to be synchronous and they tend to be fairly unsophisticated in that we're polling them because that's largely what they, they support. And most of our sort of converting that to sort of asynchronous events happens within our own our own landscape and our own microservices. So we're, we're kind of largely in control of those, but definitely it's something we probably need to look at a bit more is how we kind of define those and contract those events that are moving between the different sort of the different bounded contexts within our system. Yeah, it's uh, it certainly seems to be a, a growing trend of folks that are trying a more event-driven architecture. And uh, it's like, in the same way that you can kind of get this API sprawl with the synchronous stuff where, you know, you lose consistency as scale goes up, the same thing happens with events. The upside being it seems to be predominantly internally focused, which it sounds like is your story here. So I guess, you know, we've been talking a lot about all this stuff you have to consume to operate, but I guess if we shift back to kind of that internal focus, um, you know, what do you do to kind of try to gain some kind of consistency with what sounds like a real patchwork of external connections. <laughs> yeah. So, so what we've been doing is we've, um, it's pro probably worth going back to sort of like, um, 2004 actually is where my sort of journey on this started. And there's a, um, a chap called Eric Evans and he wrote a book called domain driven design, which is, it's one of, it's one of those classic books that it, even though it's sort of almost 20 years old, it's still, everything in it is still relevant, just as relevant today as it was when he wrote it back all those years ago. Unlike the books about various frameworks, which move and become obsolete, this is kind of like one of those core books that I go back to all the time. It's just got so much great material. So def definitely recommend it for an investigation, a little read if you haven't sort of come across that. But one of his main concepts in there is that the domain is your focus. And what we discovered fairly quickly is actually within our world, there isn't just one domain, there are lots of different domains. And 
where we had in previous versions of our architecture, those domains had kind of like overlapped with each other a bit. So concepts from one had seeped into another. So weird, weird cryptic field values or field names or data structures from, say, the banking domain had sort of seeped into the payments domain. And then as the banking domain changes, then the payments service suddenly potentially breaks or you have sort of significant sort of breaks in API contracts between them. So what we've really been focusing and starting on this work is actually looking at, let's create a proper bounded context for each domain, define the domain model inside it of how this data is structured, what it looks like, how it integrates with all those services, but then focus really clearly on the, the contract that that provides to other bits in our infrastructure, other domains, so have a very clean API model for that and a really clean set of events that we clarify and document very thoroughly. And that's the way we're trying to keep that separation. So we can build those two bits independently, different teams, different speeds, but without allowing one to one to cross-pollinate too much in the other into the other that causes that breakage. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I think sometimes people get really wrapped around the axle with DDD stuff, and I'm not saying you are, uh, but... I, I often have to kind of remind folks, just bring it back down to like the simplest thing is just single responsibility principle, right? Build a thing to do yeah. one thing. Uh, if it takes more than one word to describe it, you're probably doing it wrong, right? If you've got the and or the slash in the name of this capability or this API, right? Like take a step back. Is it really doing a single purpose? Uh, you know, and you don't need to read a book uh, to understand that idea either. Um, so uh, it, it sounds like uh, on kind of the, I'd imagine you have a lot of legacy things here. We were talking before and you're saying this is like a 200 year old company or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's originally a, a sort of a, a, a British colonial era, era bank that sort of evolved, evolved over time from sort of investing in the, these foreign countries, sort of part of the British empire legacy gone through lots of various changes and now has sort of evolved into much more of a, it's, it's a fintech with a banking history behind it. So it has a nice le- network of correspondence in sort of Africa and other countries all around the world, but actually at the heart of the front, it's becoming more and more of a fintech in processing payments. But there are legacy banking systems in there with nice sort of XML-based APIs and a couple of systems that we have to talk to where we actually just invoke stored procedures on a database because that's all that's there. And we're trying to sort of wrap those with APIs to make that much more integratable. But again, keep treating them in their own context so that the details of those systems, as they gradually move away and change over time and get replaced by newer systems, that we're trying to make sure that we don't build our our new fintech stuff on that sort of foundation where we're tied to whatever those old services were and that that's where the domain modeling really comes in is let's let's define a domain for that but we don't necessarily worry of exactly how it's implemented at the moment we know we've got a domain a new domain model that's backed by an old legacy system with a good public contract and then as we strip away one of those old layers and replace it with a new layer, hopefully, if we've done the domain modeling right, working with the business to make sure we've captured all the concepts that they want, then we hopefully don't end up with that change of backend system having to impact our newer sort of fintech payment engine. Well said. Yeah, you know, sometimes I see these threads where, you know, it's like a, uh, 
Reddit or Stack Overflow or something. And somebody's like, well, clearly you're doing it all wrong because you haven't all designed, you know, designed it all perfect. And uh, having worked in some places before, like I worked at a place that was a like 60, 70 year old manufacturing company, you realize like on a long enough timeline, there's going to be messes. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, just having... It's like dressing up the order taking window because nobody wants to take a tour in the kitchen, right? <laughs> like, just make sure that that contract is clean and then you can swap out uh, the underlying implementation while you trim off all the capillaries of side loaded traffic, right? It's at scale, it's kind of the only way to do it, uh, as much as, you know, uh, idealists who haven't seen it might have other ideas. Uh, so I can totally respect that. I guess are there other aspects besides, uh, and I know it's it's not exactly DDD a concept, but to me it is a single responsibility. Are there other aspects of that from a design perspective when you think about scaling out the future of the platform that you feel have been really powerful from DDD? Yeah, de definitely the sort of the, the whole concept of context of a bounded context that we've got the isolation, and there there are some really good patterns in there, sort of. Um, adapt to patterns, which is how we're sort of managing, sort of talking to those systems. There's, there's also really good stuff in there around what they call an anti-corruption layer, which is kind of quite good on the API world, which is all about rather than just take, taking the concept, the, taking the domain model that you've got in your in one domain. So say we've got a domain around uh, core banking, so bank accounts and statement entries. We could ship that straight away over into our payments domain and build that on the same model. And actually it's okay, we, we want to debit money from an account, credit money to a different account. But actually, you're you're then bringing the concepts of one domain inside another, and that creates that sort of fragility between the two. So that's sort of the anti-corruption layer in DDD kind of says, rather than doing that, what you do is you make sure that your banking domain exposes something which is meaningful to the payments domain, but not its internal details. And then when you bring that into the payments domain, we actually transform it from their into the payment domain model world and then manipulate it in there. So it's a it's a transformation between one domain and another rather than exposing the details of one into another across that API. And that then means that the two can move at different paces and develop as long as they as long as you maintain that transformation from one to the other, you actually get that you get that that you, you break that fragility pattern, which is why it's called anti-fragility. You, you break that fragility of changes in one place affecting another place. So that, that's something we've sort of really been sort of starting to focus on is what what is the core, again, the single responsibility of this domain to this other domain? And let's just encapsulate just the essence of that in those APIs. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I don't know. Again, I feel like that whole, how do you take a big, you know, pile of, uh, you know, interlaced things and peel them apart. That's, this is well said that, uh, you know, these are the ways to peel them apart. Um, another thing that you had, uh, you've mentioned in kind of some of your writing and stuff is, um, this idea of this Cupid concept, which I'll admit like, uh, news to me until about 30 minutes before we got on here. So tell me more. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, a, a software engineer, sort of architect, sort of thought leader based in this sort of UK software development community called Daniel North, who's sort of quite well respected, written a few books. And he started, he came up with this idea of based on looking at the sort of the, the original solid principles, which most sort of anyone who's worked in object oriented development should understand sort of the, the basic solid principles. But he started looking at it a slightly different ways. How, 
those are great for an engineering point of view, but they are sort of, they're almost like a set of rules where you have to follow them. And it's actually, why do you need a fixed set of rules that don't always apply to everything? So he started looking at for a, a different set of properties that you could use to describe software that's really good to work with, software that's actually joyful. He, his word is joyful. So software that's joyful to work with. And then we started looking at that as a bit more. It's actually, can those apply to architecture? Can they apply to APIs? And actually, they work really, really well to APIs. So his kind of view is, yeah, Cupid, if I go through the the, the five terms, which is kind of the, the thing. So he, he's to focus much more on them rather than being principles or rules they're more they're more properties they're slightly looser they're kind of you you can evaluate where you are along the line you don't have to be absolutely dived into into this layer in the maximum detail you can start at the other end and gradually move away move along the line of these properties which is why they're 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 sort of structured in that way but yeah so the the five sort of properties of cupid and there's a if you have a look on his cupid.dev website, it's actually a really good explanation. But the, the first one is composable. So this is about rather than having an API, one API that does something, and then another API which has does something sort of in a completely different way, is make them so you can chain them together. So the the outputs from one API should be with a small transformation, the inputs to the next step in the workflow. So if you're building a workflow of multiple endpoints, you can just call transform call transform and then with a sort of a common error handling pattern across them all so that it's actually easy to just build a chain of apis and then if you want a different workflow you can take out the certain endpoints that you don't need and replace them with different endpoints rather than having to rebuild the whole lot with heavyweights of apis from scratch yeah this is the uh this is the lego slide everyone sticks in their api talk right the, this is the, yeah, that's that's what it's yeah. about plug and play different cap- uh the, the common capabilities yeah yeah, yeah, and the second one is he—he's called it Unix-like, which is kind of to make the Cupid acronym. But that is the—that is the—that is the single responsibility principle, and that whole sort of pipelining stuff together. That each each in each endpoint should do one thing, and what you're actually trying to then do is build a workflow by composing all these little bits that do one thing together. Well, and I have to call out from like the the Cupid Dev site. Um... You know, and um, uh, for those not watching video, if you do, I'm, I'm tapping on my heart here that it's described as Unix philosophy, which this is like a, if you look across software in the last, I don't know, call it 50 years if you want, um, there's no single more successful thing than kind of the, the Unix philosophy of, you know, if you try to write like a, a Linux or Unix uh, command line thing, it's got to do one job real good. And if you embrace that in a design perspective when it comes to APIs, it, it just fits. It just makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it is still ultimately single responsibility at its core, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next one he's got is predictable. So this is this is one of my pet peeves on APIs, is where you you call it you call an API and it does one thing, and then you call it another time, and depending on some kind of state or some weird cryptic field value, that it does something completely different the next time you call it. And that's kind of the, the predictability is it should do the same, it should you should know what it's gonna do, and it should reliably do that for you every single time. Yeah, I would argue that like predictability in software engineering is pervasive like that. I mean, you know, like you can ask the team at stoplight, like, 
first thing I did when I walked in the door a couple of years ago says, we're going to get predictable as an organization, but that boils down through every layer of what you do. Like something should not have unintended, unintended side effects as much as you can prevent it. Right. So yeah, I love that one. But go on. Yeah, cool. Uh, and then the ne- next one is idiomatic. So that's kind of just st- stuff should work in the way you expect it to work. And again, in, in the API world, another one of my sort of pet peeves is people adding all these sort of extra document elements to re-replicate the error handling that's actually built into the protocol itself or sort of re- reusing uh, HTTP response code in unexpected ways to mean different things than they actually do mean. It's like there's an idiomatic view of how APIs should work within particular protocols or within particular structure, and your your API should stick to that. Yeah, I won't go down the rabbit hole, but I will call out here that in the uh, the show notes that Bailey put together for Chris, it just said. Chris hates GraphQL. So I'm going to leave that one there next to idiomatic and we'll move on. (laughs) Yes, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, it is. We don't don't have time. Maybe we'll have you back for that one. (laughs) Cool. And then then the the final element is sort of going back to the domain-driven design, which is domain-based. So the the APIs, the stuff, the the, the names of your APIs, the data structures in your APIs should be in a, have a meaningful domain structure that's understandable to the business and particularly understandable to the client. And that's sort of one of the things we've particularly looking at. It's, it's great if you build a really complex domain, but if the client can't understand that domain, then actually you've sort of, you failed on the purpose of making that joyful for them to integrate to. It's, it's domain-based, but it's got to be a domain that the, you know, structured in a way that the client can deal with it rather than just the sort of the engineers who built it understand. Yeah, I think it's part of why like I tend to have a bit of an allergy to sometimes folks can be real ideologues with the DDD stuff because they're looking at it in this very modularity technical perspective. But like when I talk to product folks who are learning APIs, it's like this is about customer centricity. That's all it really is, right? If we had to describe our platform on a marker board with a room full of customers, would they be able to go, oh, yeah, that's my stuff. I understand that. Right. If you haven't accomplished yeah. that, then you're just kind of bike shedding, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, sort of another example from our sort of world is um, sort of sanction screening. So that we have to like for a lot, of, a lot of these payments into countries, we have to check for that we're not sending them to people who are doing money laundering and things like that. And that's a whole other sort of that's a world of expertise. And actually, you can do that two ways. You can actually expose all the details of sanction screening into our payments domain and make it really complex that unless you're an absolute expert in that, that you can't really understand. Or we can kind of ship that into its own bounded context, wrap it between wrap it behind some APIs. And actually the payments domain just needs to effectively know, oh, we send this for screening, did it pass or not? And then that's something that the business and the clients of that can actually understand without having to deal with all the sort of the nuances of of all the various different scenarios that it can fail in. Yeah, it was honestly one of my single biggest learnings about my couple of years in fintech is that the real hidden game in that space uh, for people who get all you know zealot excited about oh we're going to solve this it's going to be easy so you got to be good at risk and compliance if you want to go global and it takes at least a decade to figure out all those different markets and like especially in developing markets i mean you're talking about like go into a window with paper to get stuff done sometimes so yeah i totally get that <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I want to reflect real quick, though, on this Cupid thing. Um, I'm totally enamored. It's probably just because it said Unix philosophy and it sucked me in. But uh, <laughs> I want to reflect on you started with uh, Solid, which um, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this from a software engineering perspective, and I'm going to go down this list and it's not going to be fun. I'm sorry, listeners, but we're, we got to do it uh, because I'm going to show you the contrast. Single responsibility principle. We talked about that one a lot. It's easy to understand. Open close principle. I don't have time to explain it right now. But uh, Liskov substitution principle. I definitely don't have time to explain that. Interface segregation principle and dependency inversion principle. So, you know, for hardcore software engineers, we're going to go, yes, this sounds great. Um, but I, I do think that the computer science world sometimes doesn't translate well into a design context. And when you're just looking at designing something, it's, uh, you know, designing a platform uh, in particular, you need a set of principles that are understandable that everyone can can kind of grok, not just the software engineers. So I love these kinds of efforts. There's been a lot of them out there. Um, but it's it's why like one of my core ideals is like, Principles, not frameworks. Like, don't give me a rigid structure because every place is different, right? And I'd imagine you've yeah. been in enough different shops to know this too. Yeah, yeah. Every every place you come across has a different way of doing it. And it is definitely that if you have specific rules or principles and you try to apply them, they probably work the first time you build the software because it's nice and clean. But then as soon as you then try and expand the software, maintain the software, add new features into the software, you get into this horrible world of, well, do I do I break the principles to achieve what I want to do? Or do I spend much longer ripping everything apart to insert all the new stuff and maintain the principles again, which is why sort of something like Cupid, which takes much more sort of, it's a property, it's not a rigid thing, it's kind of a guideline, you should be aiming to try and get to the better end of the guideline but it accepts you're not there at the moment yeah. and then you you move in that way it just makes it makes the it makes your life building the software much easier having those guides but not sort of an absolute rigid set of things that you've got to follow yeah every platform project i've ever worked on it inevitably becomes a thing as like what are our principles and i, I feel like it's kind of like it's a social contract exercise where it's not so much what you end up with. You could have anything from kindergartners to executives. The list looks pretty similar in defining a social contract between a group, but it's about having the discussion and really embracing uh, ideals for yourselves. But I feel like this is a fantastic starting point and I definitely want to dig into it. So thank you for sharing it. Excellent. Very pleased to. Well, Chris, uh, I appreciate you having uh, given some of your very valuable time to us here. Um, in closing, and if you've ever listened to the podcast before, you'll know this is coming. Um, but we just talked about a whole lot of stuff that for someone who's just, you know, kind of setting up to look at the uh, self-evaluate their own situation might go, that is overwhelming. Um, where do I get started? What do you think is the most kind of valuable thing to embrace uh, to start turning a corner on either transformation or kind of starting from scratch? Uh, I would I'd probably go and look, D definitely the Cupid site, because that just gives a, a good outline of that. And there there are lots of sort of really good sort of starting tutorials on domain-driven design. So that's a that's a good point. Um, I've, I've kind of like tried to summarize those a little bit in my blog post, so you can potentially hunt, hunt down those as a reading point, as a, a sort of study point. I've tried to keep them sort of not at a too technical level. But yeah, I, I would definitely start having a look at just touching into the domain-driven design because there, there's a few basic concepts like creating a ubiquitous language that the business understands, yep. separating stuff into those separate concerns, 
just start playing around with some of those ideas and then the rest kind of you can build on gradually after that yeah so you tried to plug yourself there but you got to tell us where where do we go to find your uh, things that you write okay that's on my blog which is um software.skipoles.co.uk nice well, Chris, thanks again uh, for coming on and uh, giving us a little bit of a grimier, hands-on view of the world. But uh, I have to say, it's it's not really probably that much different than the, the typical management types we get on here. But either way, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you. API Intersection podcast listeners are invited to sign up for Stoplight and save up to $650. Use the code Intersection10 to get 10% off a new subscription to Stoplight Platform Starter or Pro. Take a look at this episode's description for more details.